From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that just circled around the sun a seventh time. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilberg. And today's title is Heliocentricity. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. Happy birthday to our little podcast here. They grew up so fast. (laughs) So, Uh, all right. I'm guessing that we're talking about circling the sun in some way. Yeah. So I'll start off right now to say this is not controversial. All right. What we're going to talk about today is not controversial science. But I I think it's a fun thing to go through the arguments that led to the ideas between what's called heliocentric model and geocentric model of the Mm -hmm. solar system. So heliocentric, if we break down that word, centric, middle, and helio just means around the sun. So Mm -hmm. saying that the sun is the center of the solar system. And geocentric says that the earth, geo, is the center of the solar system. And I think everybody now these days from a very young age are told without using the word heliocentric, everybody knows that that's the answer that we have the sun at the center of the solar system and we're orbiting around it just like all the other planets. And I distinctly yeah. remember like in second grade or whatever, they had this cheap looking solar system in the classroom with a yellow ball in the middle and then these little rods sticking out that just went around. You know, yes, we were... I remember that. I think that was sort of like mandatory classroom <laughs> equipment yeah. for at least our part of the country. Definitely. Uh, and I, I also remember my mind being blown when somebody explained to me that that little model was not to scale at all. Yeah. Like if if it were to be to scale, it would, you know, take up the entire playground and some ridiculously huge amount of space that my my little seven year old brain could barely comprehend. Yeah, that's true that. Yeah, if we picked a scale to be consistent with it all to have Mm -hmm. like from the sun to Mercury be some distance. Mm -hmm. Once you get out to the outer planets, the gas giants are like far, far, far away. You have to travel a long distance. Right. Um, And then it's also not to scale if the sun were the size of that ball. Yeah, which is like about the size of a softball, right? Yeah. In this yeah. model, and maybe a little bit larger than a softball. Yeah. But at that scale, like the Earth would be so tiny. It's just a little speck on there. Yeah. So compared yeah. to the sun, Earth is tiny, 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 tiny. But anyway, because of things like that, I think most people just have in their mind, yes, obviously this is how it works, but don't understand why it is that we think that way. And I, so I what's think the evidence, like, how do we know? Yeah. And I think it's worthwhile to stop and remind ourselves of some of this stuff, just because we should not be going through just assuming that we know everything. We should know some of the backstories of different things. And so we're going to talk a little bit about history today and, and talk about how it is that we know that the earth is in fact orbiting around the sun and not the other way around. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because any person's day-to-day experience, if they didn't know better, if they hadn't been taught better somewhere along the way, it makes total sense that you would think that everything else is orbiting around the earth because that's just what your senses at sort of like a first approximation are telling you, your unaided Mm -hmm. senses, right? Like it's the sun that is moving across the sky and it's the stars that are moving across Mm -hmm. the sky. And I am standing here on this fixed point. I'm not moving. So it's understandable why a geocentric model, I suppose, would have developed. Well, and even in our average language today, mm-hmm. what direction does the sun rise? It rises in the east, right. it sets in the west. And so if we're really careful about this, we know that, well, no, the earth is actually rotating. And so then, you know, we're doing the movement. It's not the sun right. doing the movement. Right. But, you know, even in our everyday language, we still say that the sun is rising, the sun is setting when mm-hmm. it's really us doing all that. Mm-hmm. But overall, maybe it's worth just think about what is a scientific model. A model in science is something that is just describing phenomena that we see 
see and able to model and able to even make predictions mm -hmm. about what will happen going forward, right? So in that sense, the geocentric model is not a bad model at all. Mm -hmm. Everything, if we're just looking up in the sky, everything is rising in the east and setting in the west. We see that with the sun most obviously, but the moon is also doing that. You mm -hmm. know, the moon, if you happen to see it, if it's in the east, when the sun first goes down, it's basically a full moon at that point. You'll see it track across the sky if you pay attention throughout the night. Right. And if you pay attention to the stars, they're doing the exact same thing. They're also tracking from the east to the west side on any given night. Mm -hmm. And again, this is all because the earth is rotating, but it makes sense that people would look at that and just be like, oh, okay, all this stuff is just moving around us. I don't feel rotating, just as you were saying. But we can even get into more details and it's still a, a pretty good model, right? I mean, so on a given day, everything is rising east and setting in the west, but there are differences from day to day to day. Like if we were to go out every day at noon, for instance, and look at the sun, it's not going to be in the exact same spot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we went out at noon, which is when it's the highest point in the sky, that even changes throughout the year. And so for instance, sometimes it's higher in the sky and sometimes it's lower in the sky. In the summertime, it's higher in the sky and then we're getting more direct light. And that's why it's summertime because it's giving us more direct light and it's just hotter. And then in the wintertime, it's lower in the sky and it is not giving us this direct light. So that's why it's wintertime. Right. So, yeah, the where I notice this the most is where the sun sets on the horizon, because I, I have a view to the horizon from mm. where I live. And so like in the middle of the summer, the sun is setting way far to the north yeah. over the hills. And then in the dead of winter, like, you know, those dark afternoons when the sun feels like it sets at 330, it's way down to the south. Yeah. And of course, that's accounted for by Earth's tilt on its axis. But what must that mean if a geocentric model we're explaining this, that must mean that the orbit of everything around the Earth has a bit of a wobble to it or something, right? Yeah, something strange like that. But I mean, there were models that took that into account. And could at least uh -huh. predict what would be happening with that. Yeah. And by the way, our calendars are set up for that. Beginning of spring, first day of spring happens in mid-March. That's when the sun is about to transition into being more overhead. It's at the mm -hmm. halfway point, basically. First day of summer is actually when it's at the highest point in the sky for us. It's called the summer solstice. And that's when we have the longest day of the year. But that's also, you know, when it's at the highest point in the sky. And mm -hmm. I was telling my kids recently about how, yeah, it's weird that we call that the first day of summer because the summer weather usually precedes that a little bit because the sun is getting to the highest point, right? But mm -hmm. our definition of what the summer is, is at that point, when it reaches the highest point, we say that's the beginning of summer right there. That's right. And then in December is when it's at its lowest point. And that's officially the beginning of winter is late December, like 22nd or 23rd of December. Yeah, but and it's well cold by then. And it's already well cold before then. It feels wintry well before we actually reach that point. Yeah. The reverse of all this being true in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, for all of our Aussie and Kiwi listeners. Yes, good point. But it's possible to make a geocentric model that takes all that into account and just says, okay, so we have the sun going around us every day, but it's also on this weird tilt that's kind of going up and down. And so you can make a model and make predictions based on that. Same thing with all the stars. All the stars shift in the sky from day to day to day. In a given day, yes, they're all rising and setting. But from day to day to day, we are seeing different stars. And again, that's because of our actual rotation around the sun, because the stars that we see are the ones that are opposite to where the sun is, basically. Basically. So as we're going around the sun, we're kind of looking outward at nighttime to different set of stars. Mm -hmm. And then the moon is also, it'll rise and set just like everything else, but it's also clearly going around us. And so you can make models that take all of this stuff into account. The exceptions, though, are that particularly in ancient times, before telescopes were really available, there were five 
weird ones. Five that just didn't seem to fit everything. Correctly. Five weird points of light in the night sky. Right. Okay. And uh, these were given the name in Latin, planeto, which is now planet. Planet actually means wanderer. Hmm. Interestingly, the word airplane has a similar root. Oh, the plane part? The Of the plane. That huh. it's air wandering. Huh. If you break I didn't down. realize that was the etymology. I, I thought it had something to do with a plane, like being a flat surface. I did too. Yeah. You know, but huh. Okay. That's, That's cool. why we do we do some crackpot researching before we record these things. Crackpot researching. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Thanks to our research staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we had telescopes and things like that, these planets were just these five weird objects in the sky that would behave differently. And it's possible to track them and it's possible to predict how they'll behave. We have records of like the Mayans tracked venus very accurately actually the chinese zodiac like when you go to a chinese restaurant and, and you get the placemats there and telling you the year of the dragon and all this stuff that's all based on jupiter's orbit around the sun because it oh. takes about 12 years for jupiter to get all the way around the sun okay and so they were tracking what is jupiter doing in the sky relative to all the stuff and okay yeah i'm trying to get my head around in what way their apparent motion would not be like the rest of the points of light in the night sky right because right. i mean i know i've looked up at the stars and found the planets often enough to know that the planets are all kind of in this line lined up kind of one after the other and i mean in the, For the most part yeah and they're also moving from east as the night progresses they get higher and higher in the night sky moving towards the west right so in a given day they're doing exactly like everything else okay and that's because we're rotating right so that's that's the same behavior but relative to the stars in their backdrop they are moving from day to day to day oh so like if i find jupiter night after night after night it's neighboring points of light around it will right. not and that's what they were noticing exactly yeah so it might be oh, within okay. this one constellation today and then it's kind of drifting within that constellation each day okay so then that idea of wandering seems apt yeah okay. well but it's also the wandering also makes more sense that every once in a while particularly if we're talking about mercury and venus but Mars does this a little bit as well. They're going forward relative to the other stars, but every once in a while, they'll take a step backwards. Hmm. And this is something called retrograde motion, that it just kind of moves backwards for a little bit and then it goes forward again from okay. our perspective of things. And so these wanderers were vexing. They were troubling to everybody. Uh -huh. uh, it took a long time to kind of figure out, you know, they were sort of the thorn in the side. If it weren't for those five wanderers, and by the way, I'm saying five because we didn't have telescopes. So Things like right. Neptune and Uranus weren't known at the time. But we did have these five planets that were acting weird. And if it weren't for those, then the geocentric model would have no problems whatsoever with anything. Mm -hmm. And it is possible, even with that weirdness, Aristotle made some model of the universe saying that the Earth was the middle and everything was orbiting around us and gave some ideas of like, well, maybe we have circles and spheres and everything's just orbiting around us. You know, they're heavenly bodies, so they have to be perfect circles and so forth. And a guy named Ptolemy, which is spelled with a P, the mm -hmm. P is silent. He made it much more mathematical and made it so that you could predict them long term, what all the planets were doing. Mm -hmm. And the way he got around getting the retrograde motion and the weird wandering and stuff was that he would say, well, they're all traveling in a circle around us which is separate from the, the stars themselves. And then in addition to that, they're traveling on a circle within that circle. So sometimes it would look like they would go backwards and stuff just because they're not just going oh, around in a perfect circle. They're kind of doing loop-de-loops around. So this is almost like 
the teacup ride. Yeah. Where, right. So the planet would be sort of like on the perimeter rim of a teacup. And that's going, say, around around and around and around in its own circle. But then mm-hmm. the teacup itself is also going around in this bigger circle. Right. And so if you're standing in the middle, most of the time that planet is going to look like it's going around you in one direction. But at just the right time, the teacup might be whipping around so that the planet is going a little bit faster in the backward direction than the teacup itself is going in the forward direction. Yeah. And so that's the retrograde bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so it's possible to make all that models. Now, one issue with that, though, is that in order to make that work out, you have to study each planet's motion separately. And so it's not a universal thing. You can you can kludge it. You can put all these workarounds to make each one work out. But they're, you know, it's not ideal. Okay. Right. I mean, as far as predicting what they can do, you can absolutely do that. It's just if you find a new planet, you have to suddenly make up all new circles on circles and Mm -hmm. fit your new thing to it. Now, even with all this, like it was predictable and it, it was a good model because it, it worked for most situations. And even though some people were like, well, it seems overly complicated to have circle on circle on circle and doing all this stuff. And some people proposed Copernicus famously was one of the people who proposed like, well, maybe it would make more sense if we're actually going around the sun instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, people actually did tests to prove that. All right. And so the, a big one that people did. Have you ever heard of a parallax measurement? Well, so I understand what the concept of parallax is. But I'm not sure what you mean by a parallax measurement. Well, what is parallax? So parallax is the apparent difference in position of something when you are looking at it from one position versus looking at it from a a large angle. Yeah. And so like one that people might be familiar with is like if you're looking at the gas gauge or something and you, the driver, thinks that the gas gauge is somewhere, but then your passenger in the front passenger seat is freaking out because it looks like it's on the E from their perspective. Perspective. Yeah. Just to choose a random example. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, like, that... <laughs> when you know full well, you still have a 16th of a tank and it's fine. <laughs> Even on fumes, we can still creep right. into the gas station. <laughs> so that's parallax. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I think people can connect with that. I mean, when I'm teaching a class on this, I'll have people like hold out their fingers sort of in front of them and they'll open one eye and look at it with each eye alternate. So you can see oh, that yeah. your two fingers kind of jump back and forth. Yeah. I was just doing that. Yes. Now, so you can do parallax and you can do some geometry with that to figure out like how far away objects are. This is why actually sometimes you'll see people on the side of the road, they'll put these tripods up. They're surveying stuff. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is they're actually, they know how far apart their two tripods are and they can use that to measure how far away some third object is by, you know, making a triangle out of it and measuring angles and doing all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, okay. Okay. So now bring this back to how was a parallax measurement used? So so let's think about this. So, So in order to see a difference, if we just use our two eyes, if I look across the quad here and I do the two eye thing, one eye and then the other eye, I don't see much of a difference. It's only if things are really close that I can see a big difference between the two. Right. Okay. And so the farther apart you can get your two observations, the farther away you can measure distances of objects. Okay. And so that's why surveyors will have two different tripods that they'll separate from each other. The farther apart they are, the farther distances they can actually measure. Okay. And so let's think about that with the Earth. Well, how could we measure differences of things like that? Well, one way we could let the rotation of the Earth. Like I could look at a set of stars maybe early evening and then just before sunrise look at the same set of stars and see if they moved. I mean, obviously they went, we just said they rise in the east and they said, in the West. But from our perspective, the way we would describe it, we'd say, well, we just moved from the Earth rotated. We went basically the diameter of the Earth, essentially. We traveled quite a far distance from the evening to morning, right? So 
Mm-hmm. But it turns out you can't tell the difference with that. Oh, I see. So what you're saying is that these two stars that in the evening are like one centimeter apart. Mm-hmm. And do they are they like 0.8 centimeters apart by the time they get to the next morning or something? Right. Because we just moved a long distance apart. Can we I tell see. a difference between where they are relative to that? Turns right. out we can't. Not and, even with and, the best equipment. Go ahead. Right. And that is undoubtedly because they're so far away. Exactly. I mean, but that's what we know now, right? right. That that wouldn't right. have been of use at, at this time. Okay. And people even did a, a better test than that. Because you can imagine, if we are actually orbiting around the sun, what if we looked at the same set of stars, say, in January, and then looked at them again, say, in June, so like six months later, mm-hmm. so that our orbit, we're on exactly the opposite side of the sun. That's probably the largest parallax measurement we could ever do. I mean, now I guess we could send satellites out and sort of do the same thing if they were a little bit farther away. But, you know, that's the best that we could possibly do. And they had people with the best eyes. And there are various records of people trying this over the centuries, and they could not tell the difference at all either. Okay. And so, you know, if you're supporting the geocentric model, you'd say, well, that proves our point. You know, we did this just on the hypothetical, you know, if it's hypothetically heliocentric, we should probably see some subtle shifts between locations of things, but we didn't see that. So this just proves our point. It is definitely geocentric. Right. So like you must be fixed and you're in a black room with a bunch of dot points of light on the walls and the walls of the room are moving around you. Yeah. But because you're always in the same point relative to those walls, the position of any two bright points doesn't change mm-hmm. from your point of view. Yeah. Now, as you kind of noted here, let's zoom ahead to the heliocentric model. The only way you uh-huh. can explain this would be that, well, it turns out the universe is really, really big. And distances, so. Yes. And distances are are mind-blowingly large. You know, even though I think about this more than the average person, like it's hard for me to even really wrap my mind around how big everything is. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that it is... It is possible if you use a very precise telescopes, you can actually do this measurement in January and June and look at the same stars. And if the stars that you're looking at happen to be, if at least one of them happens to be really, really close to the Earth relative to everything else, then yes, you can actually detect subtle differences between the locations mm. of the, those stars. But you need a very precise telescope to make that measurement. Mm-hmm. Being it with your naked eye, it doesn't help at all. And so that's why they were getting a null result. And so it's not like people were just like, yeah, this is what I think is happening and, and never thought about it again. People People were actually discussing this and debating this and trying to prove that they were right about how they were thinking about things. What era are we talking about here? Is this is this like Renaissance? Is this like early scientific revolution? Well, so looking... Aristotle was well before then. Well, yeah. So he would have been the ancient Greeks. But when yeah. we're talking about like Copernicus and. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead to where the tides were kind of shifting and okay. talk about Galileo Galilei. Uh-huh. He was in like 1609, something around there. Okay. He was the court astronomer, court scientist for the Vatican, for Pope Urban the Eighth. Okay. And what that means is that the Pope was like, hey, I need some science done here. Why don't you work on some of this stuff? Actually, the big thing that Galileo was hired for was to figure out, do you know what a trebuchet is? Yes. It's like a weapon of war that uses like a lever action to hurl large, heavy things, right? Yeah. I mean, now, like you might see them there, people will use them to to hurl 
pumpkins sometimes in the fall and <laughs> and so i've seen like pianos hurled and so forth but back at that time they were being attacked by the moors and the moors had the trebuchet and so then the pope was like hey figure out how this works and see if you can build me a better weapon here and he totally failed at that but he he did some other cool stuff while he was working for him but for our purposes what really matters is that he did not invent the telescope but he improved on it he made a better telescope and he was the first person to actually calibrate it and and try to do things using astronomy with it. And so people knew about the telescope and that like you could see like distant objects closer up and so forth, but they mm-hmm. didn't know all the mechanics of it and so forth. And he was the first one to really do it for astronomical purposes. Hmm. And he found a number of really interesting things. And he actually wrote a book sort of detailing all the findings. For one thing, he found that the heavens are not perfect, which is what Aristotle said, hmm. that the moon, like obviously we see those black spots on the moon, but there's a lot of mountains and craters and all sorts of stuff on the moon. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect sphere, which is what mm-hmm. Aristotle was claiming. Also, the sun has spots on it. Huh. Did he do some some sort of thing where he pointed it at the sun, but and but then didn't put his eye up to it and like let the image come through on a piece of paper or something like that? Right. Yeah. So it's possible you don't have to have your eye looking at it. You can back project the image onto something else and you can study the sun that way. Okay. I found it's a little bit harder to do. I've actually set a notebook on fire uh, <laughs> when I was trying to demonstrate it Yeah, to some students. I was like, see, what you can do is you can hold it back here and then it started smoking a little bit. I was like, oh. Well, and that's why you don't put your eye up to it. <laughs> right? Yeah. He also studied the phases of Venus and Mercury. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, the moon goes through phases. We have a full moon. We have a new moon. Sometimes it looks like a crescent. Sometimes it's a, a full circle, all the things. And the reason we see that is because the moon is actually orbiting around us. And it's the shadows from the sun that give the moon its phases. We've talked about this before. Right. It turns out both Venus and Mercury do the same thing. And he was able to make a very careful argument about what's going Mm. on there. The argument goes something like this, that whatever model you have, let's say in your geocentric model that Venus is going around the Earth and the sun is going around the Earth. Mm -hmm. Let's just choose one situation. Maybe the Venus is always farther away from the Earth than the sun. And so it's always going to have either be a full Venus or maybe at most to like a half Venus because it's always farther away. So we're always going to see it mostly lit up. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Or maybe you'll have a model where it's closer to the than the sun is. And then it's always in, you know, a partial Venus. Okay. Like new Venus where it's almost all in shadow or only a little bit lit up. But you would never have a situation where it's doing both of those things. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. If it's doing both of those things, then that means it's actually orbiting around the sun. Right. The fact that it's if it's doing both of those things, that means that sometimes it is closer to Earth than the sun and other times it is farther away from earth than the sun yeah and the only way that can be true is if venus is not going around earth but is going around the sun itself right okay and so galileo was able to make that argument as well another cool thing he looked at the milky way through a telescope hmm. the milky way we all know that's our galaxy that's where all of our stars are uh, but the milky way is actually this it's the streak maybe at your house you can actually see like the streak maybe it's dark mm-hmm. enough where you can see it's just like blurry light but it's actually made up of billions and billions of stars yeah and so by looking at the milky way through a telescope he was able to see a lot more of the stars and and was able to recognize like oh this blurry thing is really just a whole bunch of stars mm-hmm Which tells you, actually, that the Milky Way is a lot bigger than what you would normally think. So one of our big arguments here that we were just talking about, like with the parallax, was that in order to think that we're heliocentric, you'd have to agree that the universe is 
really, really big. And so seeing the Milky Way as a bunch of individual pinpoints of light that must just be so far away that they look all blurred together mm. does suggest that, okay, well, that helps us with that part, right? Mm-hmm. And then the the final thing he saw was he was able to look at Jupiter through a telescope. And so mm-hmm. you know, he was able to see the red spot. Uh-huh. He has records of that. But he also saw four of its moons and he was able to track those moons and was able to argue those moons are clearly going around Jupiter. Right. Okay. No other way to observe it. They have to be going around Jupiter. Uh-huh. And so with that, then you can make the argument saying, OK, well, clearly things can go around other things. One of the big arguments for geocentric was like, clearly the moon is going around us. There's no question about that. Right. Even in the heliocentric model, the moon is going around us. And so mm-hmm. some people were like, well, you can't have that going around us and other things going around other things. And then mm-hmm. Galileo was saying, no, Jupiter clearly has moons going around it. And the sun clearly has Venus and Mercury going around it. So mm-hmm. we can have things going around other things. It's possible for that to happen. And he didn't know why. Yeah, he- I was... Oh. I was just going to ask, was there a concept of gravity or what that attraction is? That was at, not known at, at the time. time. No, we'll talk about Isaac Newton here in a little bit. But yeah, OK, so Galileo was unaware of Newton's laws. Correct. <laughs> but that's coming. Let's not let's, okay, let's give okay. Galileo. Right, yeah. There's still some interesting things about Galileo. So he okay. he got permission from the Pope to publish his book. There's a problem, though. In his book, he made it as a dialogue type of a thing. And the characters were, it was clearly someone who was like Galileo talking to someone whose name was basically translated to be like Idioto. But like... <laughs> Like he gave enough other details to show that it was clearly meant to be the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was this conversation between this idioto, the Pope, talking to him about how to do all this stuff and was asking all these dumb questions. And anyway, Galileo's patron was the Pope. You know, that's his boss. That's not the smartest thing to do, especially if your boss is the Pope and has the authority to excommunicate you. (laughs) So especially since this was the beginning of what is it you don't expect? The Inquisition? The (laughs) Inquisition. Because nobody expects the Inquisition. Yeah. It was the beginning of that. And so he he actually went to trial twice because mm, of this book. Mm-hmm. And he was ultimately put under house arrest and lived out his life under house arrest. And then he also was sort of excommunicated and basically not allowed to go into heaven. It actually wasn't until Pope John Paul II in 1992 mm. that the Catholic Church was like, okay, we're letting him in. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing that purgatory waiting room from Beetlejuice. Yes. And he's, he's sitting there next to like the shrunken head guy or something. Yep. Yeah. And his number finally comes up. Yeah. So anyway, okay. so that was Galileo. So now we have experimental evidence suggesting that maybe the heliocentric model is better, mm-hmm. but we'll skip ahead to Isaac Newton. So Newton actually came up with very profound insight into both the laws of motion, which are now called the laws of motion, and <laughs> to gravity in general, which is what we call the universal theory of gravity. Now, a lot of people are confused by this, that there was gravity before Newton came around. <laughs> he didn't invent it. No, he modeled <laughs> it, though, and was able to show that our perception of gravity here is the same thing. Thing that's keeping everything else in orbit. Okay. So anyway, with Isaac Newton, then we have firmly said heliocentric model. But more importantly, with the heliocentric, now we have generalized functions that can be used to model all the behavior stuff. So the reason we are going around the sun is because of gravity. We're going around the sun. That's causing the seasons. That's causing all the different things that we see. The planets. Oh, let's talk about why the retrograde motion is that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to orbit around the sun, if you're closer to the sun, you have to go faster. 
than if you're farther away. So mm-hmm. Mercury is going faster than we are. Venus is going faster than we are. But then like Mars and Jupiter, I said Jupiter, it takes 12 years for Jupiter to go around the sun. That's because it's farther away. And so the retrograde motion just happens basically when we're lapping somebody or if they're lapping us. If Venus right. passes by us, then from our perspective, we're seeing it compared to other stars. From our perspective, it looks like it tracks backwards relative to the other stars. But that's just because we're both moving objects going around. And so anyway, it all makes sense now using the mm-hmm. heliocentric model. And this is also something that allows us to explain the phenomena of comets. And if we see asteroids, we can track those and know exactly what's going on. And last year, at some point, some weird object came into our solar system and left again. And we were able to track that and say, this is how it's going to behave and so forth. So that gave us just a tremendous amount of power. Mm-hmm. And actually, that allowed us to discover the planet of Neptune through a telescope. So at some point, people found Uranus and they were able to track it. But then they noticed that Uranus actually had a weird orbit to it, that Mm. it wobbled a little bit. It was not nearly as pretty as Jupiter and Saturn and all these other planets that we had. And so a Frenchman named Urbain Leverrier, Urbain Leverrier, Urbain Leverrier, (laughs) I don't know. noticed this and he made a prediction and he was like okay so what if there's actually a planet located right here that would cause uh-huh. uranus to have a weird orbit like this and so he pointed his telescope exactly where he predicted and neptune was sitting right there it was exactly where he <laughs> predicted it would be that's cool yeah so anyway these are the that's big cool. arguments for it the the fact that the planets go through retrograde motion is really just a detail of we're moving along with everything else if we were standing still we would not have that effect at all but because we're moving as well as the other planets, sometimes they, it looks like they're moving in weird ways. The fact that we now know more about gravity and we know that, say, Jupiter, because it has near to it strong gravity, it can have moons, just like mm-hmm. our moon being near to us can be attracted to us more so than other things. And us actually being on the Earth so close to the Earth means that we're attracted to the Earth more so than we're attracted to, say, the sun or something. Yeah. And And then there's also, sorry, and then there's also the other piece of evidence that you got to is the the parallax issue, that once technology was sufficiently fine-tuned, that parallax could, in fact, be detected that you would predict to exist. Yeah. And even for the parallax, though, I mean, the stars have to be close enough. They have to be like within, let's say, 100 light years or so for us to see that difference. Right. Whereas like the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. Uh huh. And so most of the stars, we cannot even use parallax to really do this measurement for because they're right. The Milky Way itself is just so big that it really is mind blowing how big things are. Yeah. So it's like you said a little bit ago, if you look across the quad and close your right eye, then close your left eye and close your right eye and close your left eye. It doesn't really look like the building across the quad is moving very much. Right. But if you sort of do it in a way that the vertical bar on your window frame is right in the middle, and that's only about a meter from your face, and you do it, then the position of that bar sort of changes. And so that would be sort of analogous to a really close by star relative to very distant star. Yeah. Or if you're driving on the road, right, and you see Mm -hmm. road signs are just zipping by Mm -hmm. trees, which are a little bit farther away. You can see them moving, but they're a little bit slower. And then like Mount Hood Mm -hmm. is just staying put, right? Just because relatively Mm -hmm. you're not moving fast for that object. Right. But all these things together, this is why we... We agree with the heliocentric model. And it actually taught astronomers a a big lesson. Later on, when people are trying to figure out the center of the universe, there's some (laughs) data where it's like, oh, some of the observations we have suggest maybe we're at the center of the universe. And so they had to be very careful not to make that same mistake, to Uh make like a geocentric type argument. Cool. I think that should be interesting to people who are aware of certain facts, but maybe not the full history and evidence behind them. So yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah. 
This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or questions that you would like us to address, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.